Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia. You're listening to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, the home of so many fantastic podcasts related to authors, writing, and publishing. And I'm your host, Elliot Parker, as we continue with another episode of Now Appalachia, as we focus on authors with connections and ties to the Appalachian region and how the region influences and impacts their works. It's great to have you with us. And I'm so delighted to have author and linguist uh, Michael Rost with us today to talk to us about his brand new book. It's called The Journey Home, Portraits of Healing. And Michael has his PhD in linguistics. He's also a well-known language learning expert, author, and public speaker. He has over 30 years of teaching, researching, and teacher training experience in 15 different countries. And he's also written over 20 articles and books on second language learning and has created several successful language learning series for English language learners. And this is his new book. And we're going to talk about it today, The Journey Home, Portraits of Healing, because I think it's something that everyone listening to the program today can identify with and something that everyone can connect with on a variety of different levels. So, Michael, welcome to Now Appalachia. I'm delighted to have you here on the program. Thank you, Elliot. It's a pleasure to be here. I really enjoy the enthusiasm that you're generating with your podcast. It's really a wonderful uh, stream of consciousness to tap into. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate you listening, and I'm, I'm delighted to have you as a guest today. And before we get to your book, because there's so many really great things I want to talk about uh, to you and with you about your book, I wanted to ask you first, linguistics and being a linguist. We hear that term a lot, and sometimes people hear that term pop up you know, in the media and in popular culture about linguistics. So what is linguistics as a discipline, and, and then you with a PhD in linguistics as a linguist? What does that, um, what do you do? What do you deal with? What's your expertise? Uh, yeah, there is a lot of confusion. And I have to admit, sometimes even myself, I get confused about thinking about it. But linguistics is technically a branch of psychology. It's just a study of how the mind works when language is involved. So, you know, memory, perception, communication, all things where, you know, uh, language is involved. Uh, through transmission or reception, that's linguistics. We often, people often think when I say I'm a linguist, they say, how many languages do you speak? And uh, there are a lot of linguists who are simply monolingual, you know, don't only speak their native language. So I think people are often confusing the term polyglot, somebody who speaks a lot of languages with with linguist. But a linguist is just somebody who studies the psychology of language or linguistics. So... That's basically what I do. And, you know, probably you know this yourself. When you delve into an area, you think, oh, it'll take me a year or two to get into this, and then I'll go on to something else. And it's a paradox. You know, the deeper you get into something, the more you realize, gosh, there's so much more to learn, so much more to explore. So I've been doing this for some 30-plus years, and it's an endless supply of questions. (laughs) I'll tell you that. (laughs) So how did you get interested in in linguistics and language? And when did you decide this is something that you wanted to kind of devote your life to writing about, researching, and studying? Well, I, I think it was like a baptism by fire. I 
I was trained as a secondary school teacher in English, and I was fully intending, you know, to uh, graduate. I went to the University of Michigan. I was intending to graduate, get a job as a school teacher. And I did my student teaching and it's just scared the pants off of me. Like I said, I am not ready for this. You know, I mean, or I, I, I guess I saw the future ahead of me. I said, mm, not yet, maybe someday. And so I kind of in a panic mode, you know, I applied for the Peace Corps and uh, it's not an easy application, it's a several month process. And I wound up in West Africa as a high school teacher, ironically, um, but teaching English as a second language to you know, Togolese students who speak French as a national language. And um, I, I think just the, the mystique around, you know, how do you actually teach a language? You know, they gave us quote unquote training on how to do it, but like any scientist knows, you know, you gotta really have integrity as you dive into a process and try to figure it out for yourself. And so after I got back from West Africa, you know, I went back to graduate school and, and started studying uh, linguistics, language teaching. And, uh, you know, that, that was really, you know, the life experience just kind of like splash cold water under me, like, man, there's a lot here to understand. Very good. I, I know I took one linguistics class in college as an undergraduate, and I loved it. I was fascinated. It was so fascinating to learn about, about, patterns of speech and dialect and where that comes from and, and pidgin language and um, so many different things that that have gone on as language has developed. Uh, it, it, was, it was fascinating. And so it was fascinating to think about uh, uh, looking at that and, and kind of applying that in a professional setting. And, and I'm, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your book, The Journey Home Portraits of Healing. Um, this is really a novel that is kind of broken up into 35 vignettes. And one of the things I love about your vignettes as the book sort of unfolds is it's centered on one kind of theme or one set of circumstances. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about that and, and kind of what that theme is and why you really decided to focus on that for this particular book? Well, uh, as a writer, you'll know, Elliot, that um, a book doesn't start sequentially. It sort of starts like with a, a central event and then it ripples outward from there. And so the central event for me was when I went back, I was going back when my parents were in their final years of life. I went back to Ohio, Ohio Valley, Cincinnati area, uh, living in California. I would go back, you know, two or three times a year if I could, often, at, you know, on the end of an international trip where I was jet lagged, which was probably not a good idea. But, uh, you know, I would go back. And one seminal event was I went back to uh, with my father to visit a place, the place where he grew up. And that whole experience it just encapsulated in like two or three hours. I realized, oh man, this is a, something happened here. A vi I guess you'd call it a vignette or an experience or whatever. And I remember going back to the airport that, on that trip and I was in the Cincinnati airport, you know, lounge and I, I had my laptop and I just started tapping out this incident. It was about 1500 words or, you know, like a vignette length uh, memory. I said, man, this is a something really happened here that's worth recording and keeping. And even if it never gets published as a short story or part of a, a book later, it's worth doing. I, I think that's part of a writer's task is really just the recording of the consciousness. And going back and forth to Cincinnati over the period of two, three years, I, I kept recording vignettes like this. And being a linguist, I tend to use a tape recorder a lot and I record things as they're happening. 
and then go back and reconstruct them later. But it turned out that vignettes was the, the right medium for this type of book because, you know, there was often a space of time between vignette one and vignette two. And uh, so I, I just found that that was the, a, a kind of a, a natural way to recall this story was through a series of vignettes over the period of a couple of years. So you mentioned that after when you decided to write the first vignette, it, it came when you were sort of at the airport after the visit with your dad. Um, when did you when did you realize, OK, next time I go back, I'm going to start paying you know more attention to what's going on. And so that I can I can put these into my vignettes. And did you find yourself you know writing that information down in subsequent visits like you did? with the first visit with your dad, you wrote it down immediately so you wouldn't forget any of the details or was it something that you kind of reflected upon for a day or two and then wrote it down? Did you keep that process the same in terms of documenting and writing down uh, what you were witnessing with your mom and dad? Well, I, I found it essential to document something in real time, you know, like a phrase that somebody said or an impression or, or a visual image, you know, something that came that would trigger a later memory. You know, if if I if I go back to it a week later, even a year later, that particular note of image or or sound, smell, whatever would trigger the the event to allow me to reconstruct it. So yes, I did have real time notes, and then I would later go back and just sort of dwell on that note. And I I I mean, I don't believe in this kind of anything kind of supernatural channeling type of stuff, but. There is a there is an experience where you can go back and re re-experience an event if you were there really the first time. You know what I mean? I mean, I, people have flashbacks to childhood where they will they will remember vividly, you know, exactly what happened. Um, maybe some of it's imaginative, you know, they're just feeling good from their imagination. But in either case, it's it's totally vivid. And so I just found that that particular period of uh, visiting them when they were in a decline and losing their memory, my memory was actually being recharged. So that was a, one of the paradoxes of this whole situation is that the story in some way is about memory, their loss of memory and my regaining of mine. Um, and the interaction of those two worlds is sort of the uh, theme of the book. We had author Matt Goldman um, on, uh, we're going to have him on one of the programs, and and he wrote kind of a, a mystery uh, thriller novel that came out last year, um, uh, The Carolina Moon Set, which talked a little bit about, it was a murder mystery, but it dealt with kind of the same issues that you're writing about, which is um, um, a loss of memory and, and, and how difficult that is not just for the person whose memory is being lost but also for the the people that they love and the people in their lives who are watching this happen as you were going back over those last couple of years and you're watching your mom and dad lose their memory was it a gradual thing or was there a moment where the 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 decline was was sharp um what was that experience like did did they know they were having problems with their memory? Was it something you had to point out? What what was all of that like, you know, witnessing that? How, how did it happen? And, and, and how did you handle that, watching that? Uh, obviously, knowing how your parents had been most of your life and then seeing that decline. What was all of that like for you? Yeah, I, I mean, since, since that experience, I, I've met so many other people who've uh, gone through this. And I, I think it's in, it's in our DNA, you know, that the elders are going to decline and and their progeny is going to take care of them. I mean, that's built into the race. Um, 
I would say that the first stage is denial. You know, that probably went on for years, you know, where my siblings and I would just say, oh, it's okay. It's, uh, they're just, uh, you know, um, and maybe denial is kind of a protective mechanism, you know, where you just say, I'm not ready to deal with this now. Like I was going through what I would consider, you know, an ascent in my career. And I didn't want to be bothered by this stuff, right? So it's easiest thing to say is, oh, it's not that serious. You know, that's part of getting old. And it is part of getting old. But, you know, we were reluctant to make strong interventions of any kind. And um, so I think, you know, initially I didn't deal with it very well. Once there was a, an event, I mean, I start the book with an event called Bridge Night, where my mother, an avid bridge player throughout her life, suddenly at a you know one of her monthly bridge meetings holding the cards in her hand and just she she recalled this later is that it's like they were melting and so she just said very explicitly i don't know how to play this game anymore and to me that's a metaphor for a decline you know i don't know how to play this game anymore i mean a lot of what we do either figuratively or literally is a game you know that follows rules and has participants and if you violate those rules people think you're crazy or people think you know you're no longer able to participate in this world and so i think the loss of the ability to participate and the loss of the recognition that you are able to to participate that's the kind of separation that kicks this process into its downward spiral actually and i think that first that first period of the diagnosis you know alzheimer's disease and then my father who did not have alzheimer's disease he just had kind of normal vascular dementia where you know the blood supply to the brain is diminishing um, but both of them were on this down downward decline and it's you know comes with physical decline as well so it's hard to differentiate the two and so i i think activating compassion is really where when the whole process starts to make sense and you realize you can't fix this that you can only understand it and so i divide the book into you know four parts entering listening connecting and going home coming home and I think that first part, the entering part is the most difficult, you know, where you actually have to confront it and say, this is really happening. You know, the, the denial is not working anymore. We got to enter into this world and, and, and start to pay attention to the clues. And then there's a long listening phase, you know, where you literally just say, I'm a beginner here. You know, you can get advice from experts, but that's not going to help you in, on an internal in an internal way, right? It'll just give you a checklist of things to do. Um, but the listening period is the long, the long struggle, you know, where you're just trying to find out what's going on. And then I think once you accept that, I'm sure that there are books about these different stages of acceptance. But once you accept that, you start connecting with people again in, in this new way. And then you realize, hey, you know, this is another phase of life. So I think there's a beauty in this process if you accept it. And that's, I think, the hard part when people are in a denial phase. They go, there ain't no beauty here. <laughs> you know, this is all suffering. Uh, I don't, I'd rather not go into that right now, please. Uh, but I do think that there's a beauty and then there is a healing, you know, a healing in, in that just kind of Greek sense of becoming whole again. You know, so you feel you're broken and then you, you heal. 
And, and in that sense, there is that journey. And that, to me, is what the journey is about. The title of the book is called The Journey Home, Portraits of Healing. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Ross today, who is a linguist and author of this brand new book that deals with, as he mentioned a moment ago, the, the four phases of, of diagnosis to the journey home uh, with his parents who were suffering from uh, from mental illness and physical illness as a result of, of dementia and vascular dementia. So we'll come back to the book in just a second, Michael. But uh, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, you had spent your childhood in the Ohio Valley, kind of the Cincinnati, northern Cincinnati. Cincinnati area, which uh, very much is right in that ring of Appalachia when we think about uh, the Appalachian region. So when you look back on that experience, how did that influence you, uh, you know, growing up throughout your life? And what was it like coming home when you, you lived in totally across the country in California and coming back to Appalachia? Uh, what is that? What did that area mean to you growing up? And, and what did it mean to you as you as you grew up as an adult and came back and visited quite often? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the, the place where you come from quite literally defines your path in life, at least the initial phase of it. And, you know, I, I come from a German family, German immigrant family that settled in the Ohio Valley, as, you know, thousands and thousands of others have in the past. And I think what growing up there gave me was the sense of history is all here. You know, you don't have to go searching for it. That's the house where your grandmother was born. That's the house where, you know, everything is within an arm's length. To, so to me, the meaning of growing up there, it could be the same almost anywhere, but there was this sense of history is with you at all times. Uh, and all I, I think a flip side of that is everything you need is right here. And, and uh, so growing up, you know, as a child, you don't really question alternatives right it's like this is life and life was you know german catholic families who spent all their time with each other you know as cousins grew up like brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles are like parents um and there's a lot of boundary issues in that sort of lifestyle you know <laughs> uh, if you tried the gates of independence you realize hey this ain't gonna be easy and when I was a teenager, we moved to Detroit. My father worked in uh, the automobile industry and he got a promotion. And I remember in retrospect, you remember things a little better than at the time, but I remember a little bit of a struggle with the family, you know, like, why do you want to do this, Bill? Why do you want to, I mean, why do you want to leave us? You know, uh, and I think that's part of the definition of Appalachia in my experience is that the sense of we are a connected family and there's a path there that you ain't going to leave us right and when we left you know that literally there was a sense of where where am i you know um and i i think that the experience of getting away from it also helped me understand it better as a as a an organism in its own right um so the coming home part of, I mean, uh, the metaphor of the book is partly me coming back to the Ohio Valley and, and realizing that the history that was alive there is part of my history. And that if I want to understand myself, I'm going to have to reconnect with that. So that two or three year period of going back home was a sense of, uh, you know, that reconnection to the history. And just this past summer, I did go back. My sister's still living there. Um, 
we just visit these places that we grew up and nothing Elliot has changed. <laughs> I mean, like I, back in time, right? I mean, I feel like the, wait a minute, you know, I live in California now and I've traveled to multiple countries and change is the definition of life in many areas. Right. Um, and you go back and you say, that's exactly what grandpa Willis's house looked like when I was a kid. And it brings a sense of warmth, right? That you're protected by this continuity of history. But it's a conflict in your mind if you've gone away from it because you're saying, now, wait a minute. The people who haven't left are looking askance at me a little bit. Like, can we trust you anymore <laughs> now that you've left, left the fold? Yeah, so whenever I go back, um, you know, I, I gave a eulogy at my father's funeral back in at the, uh, you know, at the funeral when he died, the you know, whole collective family comes back for funerals, weddings, everything, baptism. Um, and I remember standing up on the podium there and looking in their eyes and, and it was kind of a very warm moment of connection, you know, where I, I'm telling them, you know, I'm going to miss him and here's what he meant to me. And I did in my eulogy, I related that story of going back to the cafe I alluded to, which is the first story in the book and what my father said to me, you know, I mean, long story short here, when we went back to the cafe, he had resisted going back to it. It was his grand, his father, my grandfather owned it, right? And he grew up with his two sisters on the second floor apartment for, he lived there as, as a child. I mean, that's his home. And after his grandfather, uh, my grandfather, his father uh, sold the cafe because my father didn't want to take it over. You know, that was a cause of conflict in the family. And I think all families have these stories of conflict that are buried over. You know what I mean? Smoothed out over. But it came out during that visit that that was what happened. You know, that it caused a rift between my father and his father over his unwillingness to continue the tradition. Which is a very Appalachian story, isn't it? Oh, very much so. <laughs> and you're right, that idea of, of tension when there's when there's some kind of legacy that needs to be passed down. And we see writers of Appalachian fiction and poetry and, and even memoir write about this a lot. When there's some kind of a legacy, either a job legacy, a uh, familial legacy that needs to be passed down, and suddenly someone says, no, nah, I'm not real interested in that, or no, nah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you see that tension, and it, and it, and it, it is so embedded in Appalachian culture. And it's one of those things I think, Michael, you you don't really realize it when it's happening to you, but when you step back and reflect on it, you think, yeah, that that kind of was that Appalachian trait coming coming to fruition there in in my life and my story. Well, you know, to to me, when when we went to the cafe that day, you know, he had not been there for my but I cannot still can't believe this. He hadn't been there for 40 years. I mean he'd driven past he knows where it was. He had never gone inside. And I, you know, I persuaded him to, you know, let's do a field trip and go, go visit. Um, it brought up all those memories for him, right? It wasn't just a place. It was the place where this ritual happened of separation from his father. And uh, not only that, it, the place had deteriorated from this glorious, I mean, I've seen pictures of it, you know, Pass to a, a kind of a rundown seedy bar in Cincinnati off of Vine Street, if anybody knows that area, uh, St. Bernard area of, of Cincinnati. 
Um, and, you know, he, he had to confront the decay, the deterioration, the lack of care of this place where he grew up. And I think that's another shock, you know, in, in the story is realizing that people are not taking care of things the way you might want them to. So you kind of have to live with the flow of life. Um, but it was very meaningful, a very meaningful um, experience. And then, you know, during the eulogy, I was recalling some of this just sort of free form as, as I was recalling that day. And, and I, I do remember going back you know, out after the ceremony or a little reception and a lot of people coming up to me telling me that was a very moving story. Because I, I think another factor, I don't think this is just Appalachia, but men, men relationships are not so transparent. You know, people have tough guy, posterior, well, that, that's not the right word, exteriors. Um, and, you know, don't show vulnerability that's pretty common in my family it's certainly a german family <laughs> german american family right you know it's beyond stiff upper lip you know it's stiff upper torso you know <laughs> uh and you know the the story is showing my my father's vulnerability my own vulnerability uh his grant his father's vulnerability you know just the the idea of confronting the past and the need to understand it in a different way i think is part of the journey of, of reclaiming uh, your personal history. We're speaking with Michael Rost here on this episode of Now Appalachia. The title of his new book is called The Journey Home, Portraits of Healing, which is a novel and basically 35 vignettes. And, and Michael, we'll go back to the book because I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you about the book. And one of the things that readers will see when they look at the book and when they open it up is you've got a full color portrait or a full color picture uh, with each one of the stories that are in the vignette. Why did you decide to include those? Um, well, part of it, uh, well, there's a, there's a family connection here as well. I mean, just one step back, Elliot, the, um, the publisher insisted that I use a pen name because they said, you know, a lot of people you're mentioning in this story are still alive and the institutions you're mentioning might not think they're reflected well. And so I, I had to use I had to use a pen name. Um, my son, who's a professional artist, Ammon, um, he during you know it's been two plus years since the pandemic. But when we were in this initial phases of it in the spring of 2020, you know, I'd asked my son, who lives nearby, lived at that time nearby, you know, um, would he consider? making helping me make this uh, it, you know th this is several years after the deaths of my parents but I, I had some time on my hands and i said oh, now's the time and i felt the mortality as i think a lot of us did during this pandemic you know the sense of you know hey we're all mortal here we're not gonna last forever if you've got something that you want in your, your legacy you better put it down at some point you know you're not gonna live forever so i asked i asked Ammon who if he could read well, I first asked him if he could render it into a graphic novel, because I felt, you know, that there is some visual story here. And he read each vignette and he wrote, he drew, um, you know, he made a full color portrait painting on the back of a piece of wood, it turned out, um, you know, that depicted his understanding of the of the story. And he's a, he's a bit of a like, a, Basquiat style artist means kind of, you know, very impressionistic and colorful and 
things don't make sense, you know, on a, on a logical plane. Uh, and I felt, well, that's a that's actually a very good representation of what's going on in my parents' lives. You know, they were having trouble making sense of things, and there were these, you know, strong impressions and you know, discontinuous pieces of stories that were going on in their minds. And so I felt, you know, that adding that would give another dimension to the story. You know, there's a portrait right before you read it, like Bridge Night. There's a story of my mother. I mean, there's a photo, uh, an image of my mother holding the cards and they're kind of melting in her hands, you know, uh, and she's saying, I can't play this game anymore. Um, and I I felt that that added a, a, a sen- another dimension to the story in a sense that you often understand things outside of language, you know, that I think that's what art does. It helps you understand things in a different way. And it also added another generation to the story, right? <laughs> because this is my son's interpretation and as a father, you know, I'm thinking, oh, can't you revise this? You know, and he's kind of, no, I can't. You know, this is, you asked me to give my impression. Now you can't correct me on my impression, right? Uh, but anyway, that, I think that was the reason to do it is to make it experimental as well. I think a lot of writers are trying to experiment with a new genre. You know, they're trying to add elements of poetry or imagery or, uh, I, I include dreams in here. You know, I'm just trying to experiment with a new genre that will communicate what I what I experienced. Very good, very good. So, Michael, as we finish up with you here today and our final moments with you, I wanted to ask you if anyone wants to get in contact with you to find out uh, more about your work with linguistics or, or your, your articles or the research that you've done in linguistics. Um, how can they find you? Where can they get in contact with you? And then where can they get copies of your book, The Journey Home? Uh, well, to get a copy of the book, I, uh, the publisher set up a website, gabrielbraun.com. That's my pen name. It's a play on my real name, Michael Ross. Gabriel is a archangel and Braun is a German word for bronze, which is a color, Rost is a color brown. Anyway, uh, gabrielbraun.com is the publishing website. Uh, my my professional website is called Lateral Communications, L-A-T-C-O-M-M.com. And I'm currently working on a new edition of, of my um, research book on listening which as we were mentioning at the beginning, you know, just consumed my career. Uh, I mean, the area of linguistics I got into is psycholinguistics, you know, the study of hearing and language processing. Um, so latcom.com, gabrielbron.com, both of those are ways to uh, contact me. The book is Journey Home, Portraits of Healing. It's available as everything on planet earth is through Amazon, uh, other booksellers as well. Very but good. one thing I wanted to just plug here, Elliot, if I may, is sure. uh, just just before we were um, we were on today, I was re-listening to the audiobook version of the story, and I didn't. I try. I audition. I auditioned myself for the uh, for the audiobook and decided it wasn't quite the right voice. I mean, it's the right personal voice, but I wanted a uh, a different, more dramatic voice. So I, I contacted a bunch of actors and Charles Hubble, a brilliant TV actor, um, he loved the story and he, he's done the, done the audio. I find a lot of stories can be embellished or just given another voicing through an audiobook. 
you know, and now with audit, with the technology, you can up the pace or down the pace to, you know, three times down to 25% without any distortion of the pitch. If you, if you just want to listen through fast, but I find that audiobooks really do for a lot of, uh, a lot of work and really add a good dimension to it. So that's also available through the typical channels. Very good. Yes. And audiobooks are a great way to reach readers for sure. And we've been delighted to be talking with Dr. Michael Rost here today on this episode of Now Appalachia. He is a linguist. He's a well-known language learning expert, author, and public speaker with over 30 years of teaching, researching, and teacher training experience in 15 different countries. But more importantly, he's the author of the brand new book. It's called The Journey Home, Portraits of Healing, a novel that unfolds in 35 vignettes sectioned off into four main pieces or four main arcs uh, dealing with uh, the, the diagnosis and memory loss of his parents uh, and the process as that unfolds uh, all the way until the end. So Michael, congratulations uh, on your book. It's a terrific book. And I think it's something that uh, all of us who um, have our have parents who are still living uh, or are concerned about what is it like living with or dealing with someone who is losing their memory or having memory challenges. Uh, it, it's a great book. Uh, for all of us to take a look at and to consider because we just never know uh, when we may be in that situation or when someone we love or care about may be in that situation. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, and uh, as you keep writing and keep doing new things, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Elliot. And once again, thanks for the enthusiasm you're bringing to the craft of writing and uh, appreciation for um, location, particularly Appalachia. Thanks. Thank you so much. We want to take a moment as we finish up uh, this episode of Now Appalachia to say thanks to our executive producer of Now Appalachia and also the executive producer of all of our podcasts that you hear on the network. Her name is Pam Stack. We couldn't bring these podcasts to you without the work that she does behind the scenes. So we appreciate that so very much and all the support that she gives us on each and every program. And a reminder, this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.